As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Since the 3rd of December, Tottenham have beaten Royal Antwerp, Stoke City, Leeds United, Brentford Marine, Sheffield United, Wickham Wanderers, West Bromwich Albion, Wolfsburger AC twice, Burnley Fulham, Crystal Palace and Dinamo Zagreb. In that time, they've lost to Liverpool, Leicester City, Liverpool, Brighton, Chelsea, Everton, Manchester City, West Ham and Arsenal. Are Jose Mourinho's Tottenham just an ordinary Europa League level team now? Are they just the best of the rest? My name's Jack Pitbrook, you're listening to the View from the Lane podcast, I'm joined as always by James Moore. You're James, not James you Moore. Don't... You're not James Moore, you wish you were but you're not. Did I say I am James Moore? You were about to, yeah. But we're riding oh, well, in, we're going now, we're recording, let's I go. I mean, look, you're the man, James, what is, uh, I, I don't imagine you're very happy after what happened yesterday. No, no, not especially, no. I thought, before this, we said we were going to start with the positive and we were going to talk about Lamella and it was all going to be nice for five minutes at we the start. Are, should, yeah. we, should we just do that now? Yeah, let's go straight into the positives because, look, there'll be plenty of time to moan later, but let's, oh, there uh, well. oh, there well. let's start by celebrating what I thought was one of my favourite Tottenham goals of the last few years. Yeah, I mean, it was an, a, an absolutely incredible goal. And it is, it is genuinely criminal that I'm now going to have to pretend it never happened because I can't acknowledge that that happened now. I just can't. I just won't. I will not acknowledge that that goal. That goal does not exist. That has been struck from the records for me. I, I don't. I can't. It is. It is a shame. But you know, coming in a game where one Spurs were absolutely abysmal for, if we're being generous, seventy-five minutes. To the player who scored the goal was then sent off in equally trademark fashion. You have to say, uh, and three uh, <laughs> Spurs lost the game. Uh, and blew a 1-0 lead uh, against Arsenal of all teams I, I, I'm not so sure it's going to be like a, a cherished memory it, it's going to be you know it can be like in a montage of Lamella's best moments when he leaves but um, it's not going to go down with you know the, the Gaza goal in the semi-final in 91 or whatever which is a shame because it's a, a you know as good a goal on a technical level as I think I've ever seen a Tottenham player score but it's now a tarnished memory it was an amazing moment I mean it had that thing that the, the great goals do which is shock factor like even though 
you could argue, well, he has scored a Rabona before and he has tried them before. And because he did it against Astras Tripolis in the Europa League in 2014, it's maybe not a special. But come on, that was six and a half years ago. You just, players don't score Rabonas in the Premier League. Has Certainly that, has not. Has there been not, one before in the Premier League? I can't think of one. I can't think of a Rabona goal. Like most people's, most people's familiarity with a Rabona in the Premier League is that clip of David Dunn falling over. I, sure, I think Harry Kuehl might have. Maybe it was almost like a sort of trademark with Harry, like as a cross, I mean, not as a shot. Oh, okay, I think, yeah. I just have memories of Harry Kuehl doing it a few times. Yeah, I remember Ndombele doing one, but the idea of scoring a nutmeg, a nutmeg Rabona in a derby where it goes through pa- <laughs> it's like an amazing his legs <laughs> into and the bottom it, like, corner. curls into the bottom corner. Like, it gets Astras Tripolis. I, I, can't, I actually can't remember that clearly, but I think he had quite a lot more, the, more of the goal to aim at and I think maybe the keeper was on the ground or whatever. So he just had to get it up and over and in. Whereas the, he, this one, like, skimmed along the ground, whipping through Partey's legs round past Leno into the only bit of the goal he could get to. It was ridiculous. I, t- I tell you the difference between the two. Is that that first one in the Europa League it was entirely because he's so one-footed that he had to he had to like bring his uh, left foot around and hit it with that left foot even though it would have been kind of more logical to hit it with his right when the ball came to him in that position. Because he had, he had space and time on the edge of the box to do it. This one... If he had kind of taken a touch, you know, if he'd kind of readjusted himself and hit it with his right foot, the ball wouldn't have moved in the same trajectory. The, the trajectory was absolutely perfect, like you say, through parties, legs, and into the bottom corner. Like it, it's, it was the perfect use of the ball in that instant. And you know, it probably is still slightly linked to him uh, not having a right foot. But I, I mean, it is, it's a ludicrously good goal. And like I say, it is just a shame that uh, it wasn't uh, the winner or even you know a goal in a game that Spurs ultimately drew. The interesting thing about the goal for me, or one of them, is that it was so... Like, we've talked recently about how we think Lamella is in the team more for his all-round game, for his running, his pressing, his fouling, and that the kind of Argentine number 10 technical brilliance, which he has kind of gone out of his game a little bit, like he hasn't really shown much technical skill in the final third for a few years. So this was... Uh, this ran very much counter to that. It felt like maybe he'd been something he'd been, been building up to in secret for years. It was a game that just summed him up completely, wasn't it? The two sides to him. When those two things will always come together, you've always got to take the rough with the smooth of Eric Lamella. For every incredible Rabona goal, there is like a... Actually, I think that might actually have been his first red card. Do you know if that's right? I think I saw someone tweet I that think last it night. Is. Which I is think like, it is. that is genuinely insane. Because it is... <laughs> I mean, it... Uh, even if you ignore everything else and just look at that <laughs> that battle of the bridge, I mean, he could have been sent off about 10 times in that game alone. Yeah. It, it, it's crazy that he's not had a red card before. But yeah, those two things do come together and that is that is his game, isn't it? It's that it is the kind of chaos. It's, it's these mad skills and this ludicrous aggression and, you know, uh, like those two things kind of counterbalance each other and it, it, it makes him like a, a useful player, I think. Uh, the thing that really, really annoyed me, actually, aside from Spurs being absolute trash was Alan Smith describing that goal as having trundled in. I mean, what? And I I mean, no disrespect to Alan Smith. And we know the kind of striker he was. And he was not the kind of striker that was scoring goals like that. To say that that trundled in, it's absolutely ludicrous. The the commentary for that goal was just... And and again, you know, it it doesn't matter to me as much now because I'm not going to watch it again. But... um, (sighs) It's just like really, my entirely just to kind of. I mean, maybe he was just kind of confused. He didn't realise what had happened, and he couldn't really tell that, you know, Lamella had brought one leg round the other to hit the ball like that. But it was just so for a goal of that, 
like magnitude, you know, in a North London derby, I got you know that skill to kind of be described in that way was really sort of underwhelming. Yeah, completely. And it, it's funny, it's funny you should say that because it really, uh, it really chimed with me with something that Tom Rosenthal was saying on Football Clichés pod last week, which I did with him. And Tom was saying that one of his big gripes about modern football is that as the Premier League becomes more about some mad skills and creativity, the problem is that the media and especially TV commentators don't really have the vocabulary to describe that. And they often look a little bit dumbfounded by the skills that an Ndombele or Nicolas Pepe or whoever will use to get past players. And they don't really have the words to describe it. And I, I felt that very much yesterday because I thought that I don't want to criticise Alan Smith and Martin Tyler because I think they're both really good, but I felt like they didn't really have the sort of instantly accessible vocabulary to to describe and analyse what it was. Yeah, which is weird given we had seen you know the same player score a goal like that before. And if you haven't heard Tom and I discussing this with Adam on the Football Clichés podcast last week, here's a clip. The most you get is, oh, with a lovely bit of skill. So it goes by with a lovely bit of skill. It's so specific. It's just like it's just like someone going, "Oh, that was a lovely bit of goal." Do you know what I mean? Like we have, we have other <laughs> words to describe these things. Yeah. These skills have specific names, right? And I think I think pundits know three. They know the step over, the nutmeg, and the Cruyff turn. Mm. You might get someone describing them as a Cruyff, but you know they're supposed to be experts in the game, right? Mm. So you know you've got the roulette, the elastico, the Aurelia, the Dravella, the fake kick, the mule kick, the Biava, the hocus pocus, the Acocha, the Rabona, the Ribolina, the fake pullback, the cut, the Matthews cut, the rain, whether an arrow chop, the inside hook, the pullback, the, v, the single lunge, double lunge, and the seal dribble. They've got all My of those, but, but they never they never even refer to them. And, and, and players, they know how important these skills are. You, you've seen it in training when they're doing the rondo and someone does a nutmeg, they all go nuts. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 per month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. One interesting thing about the Rabona is that, firstly, it was Spurs' only, it was literally Spurs' only shot on target until about 72 minutes when Lamella had a header easily saved by Leno. But I think it kind of, even though it feels very, it feels like it's in massive contrast to Mourinho's general play in the sense that this was a moment of brilliant skill and Mourinho's football is quite dour. In another sense, it was totally at one with the Mourinho approach because, I, you know, sometimes watching a Mourinho team, and this has been true of Tottenham this season at times, it feels as if the only plan is that one of our attackers will do something brilliant. And that, has, you know, and if you have Kane, Bale and Son, that will, or Delhi, that will often work because you have brilliant individuals who are capable of moments of magic in the final third. But Tottenham were nowhere creatively yesterday, yeah. James. Nowhere at all. And I thought that was really bad. I think, it, I think, I mean, as you say, you know, if you've got, like a combination of sort of four or five of Kane, Son, uh, Bale, Deli, Ndombele, Lamella, maybe even Bergwijn, Lucas in the team, then, uh, you know, it, it, you can kind of see that there's scope for being quite a few good moments in a game. And there have been obviously games this season where that has worked well. But without that kind of attacking framework to fall back on, I, I think it makes it harder to win a game... <laughs> I know this might almost seem counterintuitive, but I think it makes it harder to win a game when you're not playing well. Because I think that 
when players' confidence drops a little bit, you know, if, if in the first 15, 20 minutes of a game, like yesterday, you don't really have any of the ball, like you, your confidence, I, I mean, you know, and again, obviously, Lamella scored a ludicrous goal after this happened in this game, so maybe this is a, a bad example. But I would say generally, you know, if you start a game without having much of the ball, you're getting kind of passed all over the pitch. I, I kind of feel like the confidence to do things like that is going gonna, is gonna to wane quite quickly. And although it, it did happen yesterday, I, I, you can kind of see that, that, that those moments are not going to come quite as readily when a team is struggling as it would, you know, if they're playing well. So when you've got momentum, I can kind of see, and, and suppose obviously you did have momentum coming into this game, I can kind of see that you, the players would have confidence to try those things, but maybe if things aren't going well, it's going to be harder to, like, for those things to click into gear, if you know what I mean. It just, it just feels like it's sort of, you're leaving a lot of things to chance there rather than having, like, a clear system. And for someone who... I, I would describe as being quite methodical or like Mourinho it does seem quite odd to to feel like that is the approach to attacking play and I know you know you wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago um, with quite a lot of emphasis on how the attacking players trained um, and I think that kind of tallied with what a lot of the perceptions of Mourinho the pre-existing perceptions of Mourinho had been uh, from his other clubs and things that have been written about him before, I think, particularly at Real Madrid. Um, and look, cl- clearly that methodology has worked for him for the most part for his career. You know, he's had success at every club he's been at, even if things have eventually turned at Chelsea the second time and Manchester United and Real Madrid. But yeah, I, don't, I just, I'm not so sure that it's going to be something that's going to uh, that's going to carry Spurs through bad moments. It, you know, like you know, against. You know, and we made a point of saying that Burnley and Crystal Palace and Fulham were not bad teams last week, which is obviously still the case now. But it's one thing to do it against teams with inferior players. But when you're up against teams of similar or better quality, then it kind of feels like it's a bit of a risk. Yeah, I certainly think it is a bit of a risk relying on, you know, relying on the individual moment of magic. And a lot of the time it will happen. And Spurs, you know, Spurs have had a lot a lot of individual moments of magic this year. You know, Kane has played brilliantly. Son has played very well. Bale's just started to come in in the last few weeks. You know, they are they are capable of playing, doing some really good stuff. But I think you're right, James. I think there is a bit of... Um, doesn't feel that sustainable, I think, sometimes at times. Uh, and, you know, the, the injury to Son being a case in point in the sense that if Son had stayed fit, then I think Spurs' plan would have been more likely to work because... I mean, this is something we'll come back to later on the show, but if you're playing that kind of low-block counter-attacking style, then Son is perfect for it, because Son is like one of the best counter-attacking players in the whole league. But then you take Son out of the team, then suddenly the team doesn't know how to counter, in the same way that when you take Kane out of Spurs' team, they don't really know how to attack. Like, they're very... They are incredibly dependent on individuals, I think. And... um, but yeah, we can come on to that. The one thing I want to get onto is kind of the game plan, really. So Mourinho was asked in the press conference on uh, on Thursday night, I think, after the Dinamo Zagreb game, how will you, you know, how will you approach this game against Arsenal, given that you're seven points ahead of them? And Mourinho said, "I look up. I don't look down. If Arsenal were seven points ahead of us, I'd look up to them. But because we have seven points more than them, I don't look down." And I thought the implication of that statement was. Spurs are going to go on the front foot. They're not going to try and uh, play like they would do against City or Liverpool, sitting deep and countering. I thought it was a suggestion that because Spurs are better than Arsenal, they would treat it as if they, you know, the Burnley or the Palace game, where we saw Spurs play much more on the front foot, much more aggressively. They In both those games, they scored four brilliant goals. They really got the best out of Bale. 
and they just looked like a team that was really clicking going forward. And so I, th- I was quite, I was, I must admit, I was quite surprised to see how defensive Spurs were. James, they were so sat back in their own half. They looked very scared of Arsenal, and um, much more worried about trying to stop Arsenal and then trying to catch them on the break rather than taking the game to a team who has massive defensive vulnerabilities. And I get the impression that, I mean, not only did it not work, but I feel like a lot of Spurs fans are pretty unhappy with with that as an approach for a derby. Yeah, I mean, I did think it was strange. And I know a few of the people that tweeted us this morning have asked this question or, or alluded to this point. It felt like quite an attacking team that was then set out to play really defensively. Like it wasn't, you know, if he had lined up with the same sort of system that he had used in the previous game against Arsenal or that Man City game with... Sissoko in there with Hoiberg deeper in midfield to basically create that back six that we kind of talked about a bit in the autumn. And then you kind of had Bale, Kane and Son, I guess, and Dombele still. It's like the attacking four and you're kind of saying, here's the back six, that's the front four. Just kick the ball out of this end and get it to these four and see what they can do. I could kind of see the logic in that. Even if I, even if I thought playing on the back foot against this Arsenal team who are 10th in the league and... I don't think an especially great team, you know, a good team with some good players, but I don't think they're a great team. You know, even if I thought it was a mistake to play like that or not the best approach to play like that, I could see the logic in it. But to play the same system that they're playing the last couple of games against, you know, Burnley or similar to how they're playing against Burnley and Palace, say, and then kind of try and sit in and play in the counter-attacking in exactly the same way, you know, with Lucas as the 10, with Ndombele sat deep and not really doing that much. I can't really see the logic. I don't know when, you know, there have been moments in the season when Spurs have sat in and it, it so obviously felt wrong. You know, like the second half of that Wolves game, for example, towards the end of that Palace game away. You know, and Mourinho has made a point of saying he wasn't asking them to do that. They've done that themselves. They've kind of retreated and, and sat deeper. If that keeps happening, one way or another, you kind of have to put that back on the manager, right? Either, either he is... Either he is advising them, telling them to do that, or they're not listening to what he's saying, in which case the messages he's trying to give them just aren't coming across. And, I mean, if that was the case, that suggests he doesn't really have the authority in the dressing room that he needs to have to manage the team. Now, I I have no idea which of those two things are true, but I don't really see... I mean, is there a third option there? Is there something I'm missing? Because he's kind of seemed to imply in what he said after the game. You know, he talked about individual players hiding, which I guess is a slightly different thing. But at no point did he say after the game, we wanted to sat, sit deep and play on the counter, so this is why we wanted to do that. I, I, that wasn't to me. That wasn't really about how I read what he said. This, I think, is one of the big questions about Tottenham this season, and I, I don't fully know, know the answer. Is why Mourinho does say that there have been times when the players have been more defend, have looked more defensive than he would want them to be, particularly in the second half of the Fulham one all at home, for example, the second half of the Palace one all away. I think the Wolves game. Mourinho's line has been, well, I didn't tell them to be as defensive as they were. And so the extent to which that was the players disobeying Mourinho or was it just, or maybe Mourinho isn't being straight with us or maybe it, the players had an, in, like an, they just fell up, fell back on their instincts, which are to defend rather than to push up. I don't know exactly what the answer is, but um, it, it, yeah, this is something I've been thinking about a lot this since the game is how much should we blame the players? I mean, M- Mourinho was pretty hard on the players afterwards. He said in the press conference, um, we didn't have defensive intensity to press and to run, to be really aggressive and to win duels and second balls. We didn't have any of that. We also didn't have the intensity to play. Everybody was dropping back to have the ball at their feet. Nobody was attacking the gap apart from Lucas. And he also accused some of the players of hiding. Now, 
I do. I didn't think the players were great, and I thought there were a lot of non-performances. Uh, you can put that down to tiredness, or maybe it's a mental thing. But I thought Bale was barely in the game. Kane wasn't in the game until twenty minutes left, and Dombele was a complete passenger. He looks exhausted. Doherty had a really hard game. I think again, Sonny obviously went off after fifteen minutes. It's not his fault. Lucas was probably the only bright spark going forward until the ending. So yeah, I'm kind of in two minds in this, James, about the extent to which I blame the players. What do you think? I mean, look, you can't, you know, you can't separate those two things and and say the players are completely without blame, uh, without blame, and it's all on the manager. It's just completely ludicrous, and as you say. But Bale wasn't in the game at all. Kane barely had a touch in the first seventy-five minutes. Really, you know, it didn't look like he was going to affect the game at all until that cross to Deli Ali. And when was that? Like kind of fifteen, ten minutes left, maybe. I mean, he just had, it looked like he was just going to yeah. kind of not have any impact on the game at all, which obviously is incredibly rare. Yeah, and then Dumbele in the deeper roles. I know is a thing we're going to come on to in a minute. I, I, I'm not, I'm not quite so sure that works quite as well as everyone expected it to, like sort of six weeks ago. But yeah, it is. It's a difficult one. I mean, I. I I, I was a bit surprised to see... I, I mean, I think when he was talking about players hiding, who do you think he was talking about? Because to me, it, it kind of felt like it must have been Bale, particularly because he came off so early. Yeah, I think he kind of rode back on... So he, that was something he said on TV, and then in the press conference, he, I thought he kind of... Don't want to say he rode back on it, but I think he was a bit... He didn't double down on it, put it, put it like that. Um, yeah, well, I thought obviously Bale, Bale wasn't really in the game at all I don't know if it was one game too too many for him perhaps or it's not unreasonable for, for Bale I mean you know obviously it's very disappointing and it, like we're not, we're not kind of completely admonishing him of blame but I don't think it's unreasonable for Bale to have a not particularly great game after what he's done in the last say month and Agreed. that is you kind of expect you know a player who's hardly played for months and months 18 months two years basically to then come in and play a lot in the last three or four weeks there was always going to be this dip and it is unfortunate that it's coming this game against Arsenal, you know, one that everyone, including Mourinho, would have been absolutely desperate to win. But I've it, I, I got to say, it does kind of stick in the craw a little bit. And you, you say he's maybe rode back a little bit in the uh, kind of in the written press conference. You know, and obviously the game, the interview doesn't sky is immediately after the game when emotions are going to be running that much higher. So, you know, maybe he realised uh, what he said was a bit unfair. But I mean, Gareth Bale if you think of where Spurs and Mourinho were before that little run of form from Gareth Bale I mean they were sort of 9th, 10th in the league looking like they were just going to kind of limp over the line and finish like properly genuinely mid-table you wouldn't have given them any any chance at all of uh, winning the League Cup or the Europa League and Mourinho would have been under massive, massive pressure. You know, he could he could have been he could have been sat in that Sky Sports studio on Sunday afternoon if it wasn't for Gareth Bale. You know, waiting for Paddy Power to phone again. I mean, I, <laughs> that's the reality of it. He, and he did this earlier in the season with with Dyer and Aurier as well. You know, Aurier and Dyer were two of the better performers, I suppose, in the first half of the season. And the second they both had a bad game against Liverpool, they were out of the team. And you know, I mean. Uh, Aurier obviously has had uh, a lot of matches since because Doherty has struggled so much but Dyer we've just kind of you know and I'm not saying this is a wrong decision but the second he had one bad game he's just out of the team more or less permanently and it does seem a bit odd to me that he doesn't really seem to have a, maybe I'm being unfair it doesn't seem like he has loyalty especially to the players who have sort of dug him out of a hole it does seem a bit odd he was both very critical of the players initially and then I think on the TV, and then in the press conference, he was more critical. I feel like he's slightly changed tack to be more crit- critical of the referee. He said the one thing worse than our uh, first half performance was 
uh, Michael Oliver and Paul Tierney. I mean, he was very critical of the referee on Sky as well. On the penalty. Yeah, okay, okay. I think it's, uh, as ever with this kind of thing, you wonder whether it's it's emotional or is it he's trying to get he's trying to get an, a rise out of the players and trying to make sure it doesn't happen again next week remember he was he was not happy after the uh the West Ham game uh which was their last defeat before that run of wins and after that game he said that there were problems at the club that even he couldn't fix and uh and you know the, the I don't know if it's causing you know correlations and causation but after that West Ham game they went on a really good run and they won five in a row you can't keep doing that though surely I mean that just can't no. be healthy for anyone in that dressing room if, you know you, you have kind of four or five good results then you have a bad result and then the manager's kind of slamming the players again I mean and again this isn't to say that Mourinho is entirely to blame for that defeat and the players were not to blame at all but I just don't I, I don't think if you're a player in that dressing room you know you walk off a pitch after a bad performance your first bad performance in a few weeks. You've been on a decent run of form. You've done. You've played well. You're sat there in the dressing room. Just, you're really disappointed to lose to Arsenal. You open your phone up. You know, have a look and then you open up Twitter or Instagram or WhatsApp or whatever, and all your friends or other people are saying Mourinho obviously hammering player X or whatever. I mean, how how are you going to feel after that? It's just not. I don't know. I, I think you're right. I, well, I think what you're kind of suggesting is right that it's pro- it was probably like an emotional reaction to being really disappointed at losing the game. But when you've been a manager for 20 years and a high-profile manager at the biggest clubs in Europe for 15, 16 years, I, I don't know. It seems odd to me that you would do that and, and not have the control there. To me, he's been yeah, in high, he's yeah. been in higher-pressure situations than he is now with Spurs. I mean, particularly at Madrid, and I think towards the end of Inter when the media were like going absolutely crazy, I'd be amazed if he struggled that much to control his emotions yeah and it's uh it's like we discussed with Don Fifield the other day when we were talking about the Mourinho season at Chelsea in 2015 is that you know you can't keep pulling that lever forever because yeah the more you pull it the less effect it'll have and then eventually the players will just get bored of the kind of constant hot air and empty words and um I do have a bit of it. We'll get onto this, but I do have a bit of a sense that yesterday's game took us back a bit into the sort of dark days of January it just felt a little bit too like the Chelsea, Brighton, Liverpool, Man City, Leicester defeats of the winter, where Spurs just Spurs weren't really in the game. They weren't really competitive. They put on a kind of siege in the last fifteen minutes, but it's like, well, why didn't you play that well? Why didn't you play that way at the start? Yeah, to, to why didn't me, you attack at the start. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, uh, it felt like. A- Mourinho's excuse. I mean, have a go at the referee. Fine. I mean, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that, but whatever. Uh, but but to kind of come out after the game and say they were knackered, I think maybe would have been the approach I, I, I would prefer to have seen. That kind of uh, lean more into the siege mentality rather than um, kind of divide and conquer. Just one more quick question before we wrap up this section. This is from Adam, the Real Flanners on Twitter. Do you think on the pod that you overrate Ndombele and think it's time to stop playing him deeper? He looks good on social media in clips, but he doesn't do enough to influence the game and goes missing. Adam's a good question. I think the answer to that is, well, may- like maybe. Maybe we do overrate Ndombele. I mean, I- I'm not going to apologise for absolutely loving his style and loving watching him play. I think he's a very entertaining player. I think he's capable of being very useful for Spurs. Uh, I did think he was good against Dinamo Zagreb on Thursday night. At the same time, I think he's exhausted, and I don't think he. I think you're right that the the switch of him into deeper midfield it produces some good. I think he's still like a moments player rather than a control of the game player. He's not like he's not going to be like a Luka Modric or even a Moussa Dembélé, but he's someone who will do you know a handful of really good things over the course of ninety minutes. I'd agree with that, but then that to me suggests he should play as a number ten rather than 
um, yeah. in that kind of midfield too. I think. I mean, I, I know a lot of people already. There was a real clamour for him to play a bit deeper, kind of six or seven weeks ago. And obviously, you know, he has had some good performances in that time. But I think there've also been quite a few games where, well, I don't want to say he's coasted because I don't think it's. I don't think it's like a, that sort of suggests he's kind of taking his foot off the gas a little bit. But he's not been a sort of constant presence on the ball which is maybe what you know like you're saying Modric or Dembele you'd expect to see much more of in a game like that yeah. and also I think we might have kind of slipped back a little bit into him coming off after an hour of more or less every game oh, yeah. which may be sort of ties into what you're saying about him being tired which again would be understandable that, that is a big thing um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of players in that team who have played a lot of matches you know if you think of Hoiberg and Dembele Kane obviously Son is going to presumably set out a couple now but he obviously he's played a lot of matches too so that is a factor and we you know we, we talked before about the fringe players not really doing it or not many of them doing it uh, over the course of the season so you know <laughs> it's kind of understandable that you would lean into using a lot of those players or, or a smaller number of players for a lot of minutes so maybe this is an obvious kickback of that so let's uh, maybe this international break that's coming up actually a week after next match will be quite well time for Spurs I think particularly of um, international matches that you get canned. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Someone who's played a lot of minutes this season is Heung-Min Son, who is Tottenham's third most used player. Uh, and he pulled up with a hamstring injury in the first half on Sunday afternoon. So you got Hoiberg first with 3,339. Lloris second with 3,270. And then Son with an incredible 3,140 before you get to Kane, Davis, and then Dyer. Now, those are huge numbers, like, a, you know, equivalent players at other Premier League clubs who have not played as many. Also, they're huge numbers because of how Son plays, James. Like, Son's a sprinter. You know, it's, yeah. easy, it's not easy to play every game if you're a keeper or a holding midfielder, but it's easier than if you're someone whose game relies on lots and lots of sprinting. And it's it's amazing. I think this is Son's first injury since he broke his arm at Villa Park in February last he year. He had that hamstring injury, didn't he, in October, where oh, at, yeah. at half time in the Newcastle game, when Mourinho kind of said at the time, we'll be without him for a while, and then he came back for the next league game. He missed, he missed oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. the Maccabi Haifa and Chelsea League Cup games and then came back for uh, yeah. Manchester United, I think it was. I, I guess Spurs will be hoping that it's a similar sort of period of time. Obviously, that would mean him missing two bigger games, the second leg in Zagreb and Villa at the weekend. So, yeah, it'll be difficult. And obviously, Lamella is going to be missing for Villa as well. So that does kind of pose a question uh, for Mourinho, who, who he's going to bring in. I mean, I, if he wants to stick with Lucas as the number 10, then I suppose it means Bergwijn is going to play. Or the other option is shifting Lucas out wide and bringing in Deli Ali, I guess. Yeah, it's str- the the decline of Bergwijn is is strange. I think like he's I had a Dutch journalist call me up the other day and, and ask me about this because it's in Holland it's quite a surprise because he was you know he was one of the superstars of the Eredivisie, and then he's uh, you know came to Tottenham 
scored that famous goal against Man City, scored the famous goal against Manchester United when football resumed in June after COVID, after the first big COVID pause. And then he's had, you know, he's been in and out of the team this year. And he, there were times where he played a lot. Like he was, you know, he had that run of three starts in a row when Spurs lost to Liverpool, Brighton and Chelsea back in January. And Chelsea was his last league game. And that was more than a month ago. It was last league start. And since then, he's only started the FA Cup game at Goodison. And the sort of fairly dead Wolfsburger AC at home Europa League game. So yeah, he's been well out of the picture. And I can see, you know, I'm sure his confidence is pretty low. He hasn't really struggled in front of goal, but... I actually thought he was okay when he came on against Dinamo Zagreb last week. I do like Bergwijn. I would like to see him a bit more involved. Yeah, it just seemed like a strange one. I mean, I, I guess you'd probably say he has been the biggest um, casualty of Gareth Bale's sort of resurgence because it just meant there have been that many fewer minutes for sort of attacking wide players, I guess. Not that he necessarily would have played on the right. He seems to have played on the left more this season, which, which yeah. I think is generally where he's looked a bit better. It is a bit of a weird one. I mean, he really did feel like he was one of Mourinho's kind of trusted lieutenants in that kind of uh, sweet spot, as we were talking about before in the autumn. Uh, you know, he, he was kind of doing that defensive shift from an attacking position that you would kind of expect Mourinho to, to really love. And he was playing pretty well in those games. It's easy to read too much into some of these things, but you do think like there was quite a big fuss about some of the abuse he got on social media after that Liverpool game, if you remember, he missed... Yeah, quite a good chance I mean it's not like a sitter but it was a decent opportunity at 1-1 and you do wonder whether that actually maybe had quite a big effect on his confidence and that since then you know obviously he hasn't scored a goal this season in any competition which is pretty unusual for a player like that although I wouldn't say he's missed loads of chances it's not really felt like he's missed chance after chance it's not really been one of those seasons where a player has just never looked like they're never going to score he just hasn't really had opportunities I think the thing to remember with Bergwijn is he's really young isn't he he's still kind of only 21-22 I think so you know, clearly he is kind of still one for the future. I do wonder whether he might end up going out on loan next season if, say, Sessegnon comes back into the fold. And I know there are kind of issues over um, homegrown quotas and whatever, particularly if they're yeah. in Europe again next season. So maybe that might be a good option if they can get him like a Premier League loan somewhere, you know, with a view to coming back and having an opportunity the season after. That might not be the worst thing in the world, in my opinion. But if it feels like he needs to play, he feels like one of those players where. He needs yeah. to build up a bit of a head of steam. He needs to get a bit of rhythm, you know. And if he went to, I, 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 I was going to say a mid-table team, another mid-table team, mm-hmm. uh, or, or like an early promoted team or whatever next season and, you know, got a bit of a run and scored a few goals and got a bit of confidence and, you know, had fans chanting his name and whatever, then maybe you'd see a different player. But he does look, and again, it, it's really easy to kind of read, <laughs> read too much into people's facial expressions, but he just doesn't look, he doesn't look happy. Uh, it makes me quite sad seeing him kind of sat on the bench looking really like just having like real sadness in his eyes you know it's it's sad this episode is supported by fx's welcome to Wrexham. celebrity owners rob McElhenney and ryan reynolds's small town welsh football club has finally been promoted into league two after 15 seasons in the national league dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So it's a big week coming up with um, Dinamo Zagreb second leg on Thursday. Spurs obviously 2-0 up already. I think they should be fine. I don't know what sort of team he'll play because, of course, Villa on Sunday night is a massive game in the league. I kind of feel like, I feel like top f- for a while. I thought that the, the everywhere in the league below City would be very fluid. I now feel like Leicester, Man United, and Chelsea feels quite solid. The second, third, and fourth, which makes me think it'll be harder for any of the teams outside the top four, whether that's. Everton, Liverpool, West Ham or Tottenham to actually nick fourth place. I imagine that what is currently the top four will stay the top four for the last nine games of the season. Yeah. I mean, Chelsea look so good defensively, don't they? That even when they have an off day in front of goal, I think as I did at the weekend, they're probably not going to get beaten too often. So yeah, I mean, obviously they've got a head of steam as well, haven't they? Now they've got like sort of 10 unbeaten or whatever it is since Lampard left. Leicester haven't had the wobble that we kind of expected them to do when they got the injuries. It's kind of a bit annoying. It'll be interesting to see how much a desire there is to finish sort of fifth because you know clearly that was quite a big deal last season there was quite a lot of emphasis put on the fact yeah. that being in Europe was really important but I don't know will there be the same appetite to do that Having if, if they go deep in the competition this season and don't win it will, will they want that kind of draining experience again next season or would they rather kind of have that Chelsea 16-17 vibe of not being in Europe at all and just going for the title and being able to just kind of focus entirely on the league I don't think they can afford not to be in Europe both yeah financially and from sort of self-esteem perspective. What I hope will be the first post-COVID season of fans back at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which will actually make it the first full season, hopefully, of fans fans at games, if possible. The idea of not being in Europe, I think, would be horrible. But it, it does speak to what we were talking about at the top of the show, which is Spurs need to remember how to beat good teams because... You know, for them, the Spurs can have a good end to the season, but they'd either have to beat City in the League Cup, they'd have to have a brilliant run in the Premier League, inc- probably including beating Man United and Leicester City over the run in, or they'd have to win the Europa League, which contains some very good teams like uh, Ajax, Milan, Man United, Roma, Arsenal. So there's no. You know, Spurs can have a good end to the season, and Spurs can look back on 2021 with some positivity. But they have to get better against big teams, James. And I, I wonder how they do that. Yeah, I mean, uh, so they've got 10 games left. And, you know, you highlighted at the start of the show how bad their form has been against the the, you know, the, the clubs in the top half of the league. They've not beaten a, a club in the top half of the league since... I think actually had to go back to the City game in November because Arsenal was sort of 15th in the league when Spurs beat them before. Yeah, and five of the last 10 games are against teams in the top half of the league. So, yeah, clearly uh, clearly they're going to have to kind of find a way of doing that if they want any chance of getting to the top four. They could probably win the other five games and finish, like, sixth or seventh, I think, just because I think clubs are going to throw points away and it's going to be a bit of a mess. But if they want any chance of getting fourth or fifth, and obviously fifth would be kind of straight into the Europa League group stage, which I think would be quite useful, like, given what we saw earlier this season. They're going to, yeah, like you said, they're going to have to, you know, maybe not beat Manchester United, but they're certainly going to have to kind of beat Everton and, uh, you know, Villa. Those are the kind of games they're really going to need to win. They can't afford to not win those games. So I don't necessarily think you need to massively change your approach in those games either from what they were doing against Burnley and Palace. I mean, you can't quite afford to throw caution to the wind to quite the same degree. But they, they should kind of back themselves to beat those teams, shouldn't they? They should have better players, man for man. I mean, I know it doesn't always work like that. But I don't really see, you know, and it is kind of a similar thing to what we saw yesterday. 
They had a better. <laughs> you looked at those two teams before the game. You'd say Spurs had the better better team one to eleven, and they've played in this sort of weirdly passive way. And if they do the same thing against teams like Villa and Everton, then you know you can kind of expect to get caught out in a similar fashion. It's important to sort of assert yourself on these games against teams who are sort of of a similar standing. It's really. I can't really comprehend why you wouldn't do that. It is odd. I just want to finish with some uh, some questions from readers uh, before we wrap up. So we've got a question here from quiz winner James Lewis. Why did we treat Arsenal like we were playing their invincible side and not what they are, which is a mid-table team with some talented young attackers? Well, I feel like we've kind of we've kind of covered that a bit already, but it's uh, yeah, I definitely think James that it was a they probably did show Arsenal a bit too much respect given where Arsenal are in the league and never show Arsenal respect never show Arsenal never respect never show Arsenal respect uh, one here from Luke Warner even if by some miracle Mourinho wins the Europa and League Cup with us is there much a case for keeping him given how atrocious being a Spurs fan is now most of the time well this is an interesting one like if if they win the league in the Europa League well there is an argument which says if they win the League Cup in the Europa League Mourinho has massively succeeded and he's got the team back in the Champions League and he deserves to manage them in the Champions League, you know, because he got them there. Some people might disagree with that and say, well, but how are we going to improve on that next season? Maybe now would be the best time to make a change, hypothetically, start a new cycle, a new process in the Champions League under a different manager. But then it's very hypothetical. I, I don't know whether the Spurs are going to win the Europa League or the League Cup, James. Yeah, I mean, that, that that would represent, I think, a very good season. And I think if you'd come, if you'd gone to any Spurs fan over the summer and said, win the League Cup and the Europa League and, and then finish, you know, what would it be, like 7th or 8th or whatever? I, I, I'd be surprised if there was anyone who wouldn't take that. I, I mean, I definitely would have taken that. But... <laughs> If you're kind of throwing it forward to next season and the season beyond and the seasons beyond that, I, I, I would be slightly cautious because you know for all the kind of positivity about Mourinho and giving opportunities to you know your, your Tangangas and your Joe Rodens earlier in this season and last, <laughs> those two players have completely disappeared from the face of the earth in the last few weeks. Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, having seen how, um, you know, Mourinho is completely determined to make Tanganga a right back, and I think that might not be a terrible shout. And t- he had a very good game at City, despite the fact Spurs were terrible. So, what I don't really understand, I, I, he's fit as far as I know, and I don't really understand why he's not in a team. Because, I mean, Doherty, I, you know, with all due respect, has really struggled this season for whatever reason. And it kind of feels like you could, you could just might as well just chuck Tanganga in and just see how he gets on. Roden obviously again is an even weirder one. He just you know having said after the, the, the mistake against Liverpool that he wouldn't kind of be dropped, he he wasn't dropped. He did play the next game, but then he hasn't played since then at all. I don't think he's even been on the bench that much. It is yeah, it is very strange. Uh, so to, to the point that ramble was in terms of kind of throwing forward and developing players and bringing younger players through, I, I would be slightly concerned that that you know that despite all his kind of self congratulatory stuff about playing Dane Scarlett. I, I'm not convinced that would necessarily be what would happen. So maybe that's maybe that's a a bigger factor in, uh, or should be a bigger factor in the decision. And one more here from Mark Birdie. For me, that was our worst defeat under Mourinho. We'd managed to build some momentum and confidence, albeit against teams we should be beating. And by reverting to his default negative tactics, he threw it all away. He'll never change. He has to go. James, the fact is, Mourinho is not going to go anywhere now. 
whether or not he goes anywhere in the summer, I think is still very, very much up in the air. It depends on a, a huge number of factors, not least how Spurs do in the next few weeks. So no, I think he, for now, I think Spurs have to succeed with Mourinho, but then let's see where we are in the summer, I think is all I can say to that. Yeah, I mean, I would I, I would kind of echo that tweet, really. It's incredibly frustrating to see, you know, to see things be incredibly, incredibly positive for a few weeks and everyone to kind of be, okay, well, this is good. This is working. Now, Bale's in a team, we're playing well, we're attacking, we're playing on the front foot, we're playing to our strengths, we're getting results against teams who, you know, are otherwise getting results against good teams. And again, we saw Burnley beat Everton at the weekend. So to kind of go from that to reverting to type and being really passive and unambitious yeah, it is incredibly frustrating. And I can see why people might, particularly because it was against Arsenal, in, in a moment where I think most Spurs fans, and I think rightly would feel that Spurs are better than Arsenal, to go, to go there and play like that is incredibly frustrating. and yeah, it, it might be the straw that breaks the camel's back for quite a few people. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's podcast. Uh, thanks again to James and producer Tom. Thank you to everyone who sent us some questions. I'm sorry we didn't get around to all of them, but we we really enjoy your feedback and interaction. Uh, keep sending us stuff to talk about. We'll talk about it next week. Uh, and we'll be back next week where we'll look back on the Dinamo Zagreb second leg and the Aston Villa game and then forward to a little bit of a break over the internationals. The Athletic. Hello listeners, sorry to interrupt your show, but we've got a small favour to ask. We're currently doing a bit of a survey to find out more about you, your podcast listening habits and the sort of adverts that are most relevant to you. If you feel like helping, please head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. That's pretty catchy, so I'll say it one more time. Surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. Thank you.